This is a short introduction to our next Bighorn podcast. We recorded this episode with Alan Scuba a couple of weeks ago. Since then, Alan's beloved wife, Nancy, has passed away. Our hearts go out to Alan for his loss, but we would like to dedicate this podcast to Nancy's memory and their everlasting love for each other. Enjoy the Bighorn Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Bighorn Podcast with interesting people and their extraordinary stories. As we continue to share with you these fascinating stories about the people that make up our community, we once again want to thank Leeds and Sun Fine Jewelers, a member of our community for over 70 years. AT&T, who reminds us it can wait. Please don't dive distracted. And Back Nine Greens, whose work is known worldwide. Remember that golf art starts with Back Nine Greens. It is because of their support that we can continue to bring you these stories that connect us in a way that brings us closer as a community and a family. My name is Marty Lockman, and today's guest is Alan Scuba a member of our community since 1996. Alan's story starts in Maywood, California, which is now more than double the population of when Alan's journey began. Maywood is the third smallest city in Los Angeles County, but the most densely populated city in California. This is where it all started for Alan, and now let's hear your story and where your life takes you from there. Marty, I, I'm really honored that you'd asked me to be a part of this because I, I, uh, I've listened to all of the podcasts and have enjoyed them tremendously. And I find so many interesting things about people that I felt I knew a lot about. But as time has gone on and listened to the podcasts, it's been very enlightening. So I'm pleased that you'd have me. I was, as you said, born in Maywood, California. It's a little small southeast community, and I was the only child born just prior to World War II. My parents were married in their hometown in Connecticut, and the day after their marriage, they left for Southern California in a 1932 Buick, not knowing anybody in Southern California, but they settled in Huntington Park, which is an adjacent community to Maywood. My father, before marriage, was a trapeze artist. He was a trapeze aerialist in a touring vaudeville group. Once he married, he and mom focused on his career, becoming a certified wood and metal pattern maker. He did World War II manufacturing for airplanes and tanks. And he worked there for 37 years, and I was raised in that community. I started working at 12 years of age. I was doing things like hardwood floor installations. I worked at a paper mill. I did street corner newspaper sales. In fact, Thinking back on it, I was selling newspapers on busy L.A. streets, uh, Daily News, and the Herald Express, I thought back, was I just saw it recently, seven cents for the newspaper. But I earned my high school money as a linotype operator, where I made 85 cents an hour. We published three weekly high school newspapers and one college newspaper, and uh, I would work till 10 or 11 o'clock weeknights on the linotype, so that was kind of an interesting start for me. I played uh, baseball in high school and basketball, and then I went on and played some in college. I met my wife, Nancy, uh, 
at Huntington Park High School as a freshman. So my wife and I dated all through our four years in high school. We married in 1958 in Salinas, California. And I can explain to you that by way of my career took me from broadcasting, which I'll reflect on. Uh, I started in broadcasting in a small desert community called Ridgecrest, where they had the earthquakes a couple of years ago. And from there, I matriculated to radio and television in Salinas and uh, worked there for several years and then uh, got on to other things in broadcasting. Our, uh, our marriage culminated 62 years ago. Uh, we had four children, two boys, two girls, nine grandchildren, four great-grandchildren, and I have a fifth great-grandchild to be born in February. We're proud of that. Our oldest son, Brent, is uh, 32. He's with Alaska Airlines. My daughter, number one, Laura, is a graphic designer with a hospital supply firm in Marietta. My second daughter, Heidi, is a San Diego attorney, and she's a senior director with a wellness company. And our second son, Stephen, is a retired police officer who lives in Las Vegas. In fact, he's here visiting me this weekend. We have a grandson who's a Class A PGA golfer in Montana. His brother lives with his wife and two sons in Marietta, another grandson in New York who's an actor and has the lead now in a made-for-TV documentary on the History Channel due out next year. Two granddaughters who excel in academics as juniors and seniors in high school and performing in the San Diego theater area since their earliest years. The other brother, Danny, graduated from the University of Oregon with an interest in forestry, a grandson who lives in Salt Lake City and expecting the baby boy in February. Two other granddaughters, one in Salt Lake City and the other a special needs child, 31 years old. She lives in San Diego and I love them all. My broadcasting interest started in high school with a home radio station. I broadcast to neighbors uh, from my bedroom. I had wires going to my neighbor's home and that was when I was like 14 years of age, but it really uh, furthered my interest in broadcasting as I continued into college. My parents were set on me becoming a dentist and I didn't have the grades or the wherewithal to do that. So I, I focused really on broadcasting and it was uppermost in my mind. And I made the decision that uh, my career was destined to be in broadcasting. Let me ask you, Alan, just a question as we go along. When you're this child with this local uh, and very local radio station, what were the subjects that you covered during that time? Well, I would take the, the local newspaper and I would rip and read from the newspaper, uh, play music, and just it was the idea of this was kind of the beginning of like tape recorders. I had a tape recorder. That was my Christmas present. Uh, and so I fussed with that and, uh, you know, played music and broadcast. There was no feedback. I would talk to the neighbors and they'd say, well, we listen to you, you know, from time to time. But uh, that was fun. And then I took that same interest into high school and I would do the noon broadcast to the campus. And then, I, as I said, I did it in college. But uh, that was kind of my career path. Um, when I was uh, 21, after working at Channel 8 in Salinas, I was, uh, I was hired to manage the radio station in Carmel, KRML, and that's the same radio station that was used in the movie Play Misty for me. And uh, that was a fun experience, and I did that. I had nine people on the staff, all of which were 
older than me. I was 21 years old, but it was a great experience. But more than life itself, my stated goal was to be associated with what in the early 60s was the premier radio station in all of Los Angeles. And that was KFWB. It was a Kroll Collier station. It is the real advent of rock and roll radio. And that was kind of the thing that was uppermost in my mind. And there was a position that became uh, open at the radio station. And uh, I interviewed uh, in what was perhaps one of the more interesting and creative parts of my life. Uh, there, there were a number of applicants. I was told subsequently that there were 58 applicants for the job. And I remember saying, you know, how could I possibly put myself apart from other people making the application for the job? So I asked my wife for three eggs, uh, which we took, and I took a needle and pricked the end of the tiniest hole in the end of each egg. And then with a straw, I surgically sucked out the content of each egg let it properly dry for a couple of days. And then I put on a piece of tissue-thin paper. I wrote my name and my telephone number, writing, Alan Scuba, call this number, collect. And I then inserted each of these papers into each egg very carefully. And on the outside of the egg, I wrote, please give this egg a break. Now, remember, this was in 1961, well before the days of today's method of computers and emails and FedEx and communication matters. So I thought, how could I ingratiate or best gain the intention of those who are going to be reading my application? So I carefully packaged the eggs in three separate boxes, each containing one of the prepared eggs. The packages were specifically addressed to the president of Kroll Collier Broadcasting, the general manager, and the sales manager. And then, keeping again in mind, this is 1961, I mailed them airmail, first class, addressee only, return receipt requested. Well, as fate would have it, the packages were all delivered the morning of a corporate meeting in Los Angeles. And later, I was told that each package was delivered during their meeting. That same week, I received a call asking me to meet with management. I interviewed and ultimately was selected from a field of 58 applicants and named Director of Sales Development in what was then the number one radio station in Los Angeles, and by virtue of its audience ratings and ad sales, it was the kingpin in all of Los Angeles broadcasting. Subsequently, uh, I had an opportunity to manage a radio station in Apple Valley in Victorville, California. And uh, at the age of 25, <clears throat> I scraped together a meager down payment, and with a partner, I bought my first radio station in 1964. That was in Escondido, California. In 1967, a new communications phenomena came into being. It was the beginning of the cable TV industry. The name Escondido itself in Spanish means hidden. So reception from television in the areas was essentially limited to a few of the San Diego TV stations. We were successful to compete for and secure a license to bring cable television to Escondido by virtue of importing 12 TV stations from Los Angeles. Subsequently, the cable systems were sold to the Los Angeles Times. As a result of the ownership of the radio station and cable TV in the community, I became more involved with city politics and how it functioned and how it was running in the city. So in 1968, at the age of 29, I ran for the office of city councilman and was elected. 
and then became a two-term mayor, and then I served eight years on the city council. Later, I ran unsuccessfully for the California State Assembly, but it was a life-learning light bulb moment because subsequently, as most things are, turned out to be one of the best things that ever happened to me. During this period, with a partner, we built and owned and operated five Marie Calendar restaurants in Escondido, San Diego, and here in Palm Desert. We built and owned and operated four separate full-service car washes in Escondido, San Marcos, Vista, and Poway. We operated the businesses as the Randy Jones Car Washes. Randy was our partner. With the, he played for the San Diego Padres at the time and was the recipient that year of the 1976 Cy Young Award. We partnered in 78 industrial buildings in Escondido and San Marcos. And we were among the 13 original investors in Jet America. It was an airline that operated out of Long Beach, California, with daily flights to Chicago and Dallas. The service began with nine uh, McDonnell Douglas DC-9 stretch jets. And after four and a half years of operation of the airline, it was sold to Alaska Airlines. In 1971, we owned, or I owned, and operated a third radio property, an AM station in Thousand Oaks, California, just north of Los Angeles. Perhaps one of the more adventuresome business endeavors was when we secured a half-city block in downtown Escondido. We staffed and constructed a Mercedes-Benz sales and service facility. The plan was to develop a standalone operation in a bid to secure the area franchise for Mercedes-Benz, a dealership point. It didn't come to fruition. And this perhaps was one of my single biggest disappointments of my business past. Again, learning from losing. It didn't seem like it at the time, but it was the single best thing to ever happen. I always loved Babe Ruth's comment, every strike brings me closer to the next home run. Having sold all my business interests in fifth, at 53 years of age, a Rancho Santa Fe group developed a new private golf club in Rancho Santa Fe called The Farms, and they invited me to assist in the sales of golf club memberships. I successfully brought the club to 335 memberships, and this was the first occasion of having met and enrolled R.D. Hubbard and Jim Colbert. They were members of the Farms Golf Club at the time. Some Farms members since then have joined Bighorn. Among them is Tony Acone and George Young, who's a recent member here at Bighorn. He's a past president at the Farms. Just a couple examples of who have come to Bighorn as a result of my connections with the Farms. Shortly after Mr. Hubbard and the group of local investors purchased Bighorn from Westinghouse in 1996, I was asked to come aboard as director of memberships. At the time, there were about 40 Bighorn members. Initiation fee was $40,000, and the announcement and construction of the Canyons course was in the offing in 1970, 1997 and 1998. The popularity and the recognition of Bighorn was extraordinary at that time. It set us apart from all other clubs in the Coachella Valley. The canyons opened December the 15th, 1998. That year, I recall, we sold 63 memberships in that year alone. There's been 13 subsequent initiation price increases in the intervening years, 
and it brought its membership to its current status of 545 members. After 22 wonderful years, I retired from Bighorn just two years ago. It was a great, great experience. Nothing is great on its own. Uh, it takes, in my view, a united group of sincerely dedicated individuals. Make no mistake about it, the primary catalyst for the ultimate success lies directly with R.D. Hubbard. He, along with the foresight and optimism of 22 local investors, are responsible for the development of what Bighorn is today. Behind all of this spectacular growth and success was the imprint of Carl Cardinelli. Carl shaped and molded everything you see at Bighorn. There's a particular collection of supremely dedicated personnel who put their effort to making all of this work. No less, General Manager Tony Ogrodnik and Membership Director Mike Grenier, who have been a very integral part of the growth of Bighorn nearly from its inception back in 96. Two incredible individuals who are significant cogs in the wheel, which has seen Bighorn evolve into what it is today. As you all know, real estate sales blossomed. It was an incredible endeavor with sales in excess of $3 billion with a remarkable staff that remains to this very day. Having often sung the praises of those special folks who are on the front line of day-to-day -day operations, the likes of people like the mountain's main entry greeter, John Standish, hardworking Abel Lopez and his staff, Cheeto Vasquez, who oversees the keeping of both golf courses, maintenance of landscaping. A lot of people don't realize it, but maintains the landscaping along Highway 74, both sides of the highway for a mile and a half. Also the Homeowners Association. And with the help of his staff of 114, do in my judgment an incredible job. Director of Golf Travis Nelson and the golf shop staff who bring excellence and professionalism in overseeing golf operations. The importance of people like Brendan Daly and Jen McLaughlin cannot be overstated. Knowing the membership and assuring smooth flow of golf play is critical. And in my judgment, they do this very effectively. Often overlooked and yet representing the very soul of what makes all of this work is people are people like men's locker room manager Bobby Carlin, executive chef Greg Proper, steakhouse executive chef Nick Stadbog. Behind the scenes, Carol Trufaro, the office manager and executive assistant. Sandy Troiano, front desk concierge. After 22 years of being at Bighorn, as I mentioned, I retired in 2018. The absolute love of my life, my wife, Nancy, has suffered recently. A series of strokes over the past several years, and only recently <clears throat> required home care nursing here in Palm Desert. It's our first time apart since meeting as 14-year-olds, 67 years in all. Golf has been a big part of my business and personal life. The friendships that have made over the years have been very fulfilling. One of my closest friends is former CBS TV golf commentator, Gary McCord. He and I have been friends for 45 years. I was best man at his wedding. I edited his books, Golf for Dummies, and Arrange Ball in the Box of Titleists. An interesting undertaking, I might have said. 
I've been fortunate uh, in golf, uh, which has been a big part of my life, to play courses like Augusta, Pine Valley, Cypress Point, Pebble Beach, Wingfoot, Firestone, the Royal and Ancient at St. Andrews, and a number of other courses in Scotland and Ireland. Golf's been very good to me, and uh, I trust I've been equally <laughs> responsive and good to those who I've served. People have asked me in the, over the years about what I do on Thursdays. I formed a group of middle-aged golfers back in 1973, a group that we call the Thursday Thumpers. The plan was to meet and play every Thursday on a different golf course. We would schedule and play 52 different courses in a year. We'd never repeat playing a golf course. We played courses in San Diego, Riverside, Orange, and L.A. counties. And well before the use of computers and the Internet, we'd send weekly newsletters in the mail recapping the scores and adding photos and keeping our own handicap system. Twice a year, the group would schedule four-day tournaments at distant locations. We'd play in Tucson, Scottsdale, Santa Barbara, Monterey, Carmel, and Las Vegas. Today, the Thumpers have our own website for scheduling and photos, videos, and our own roster. So what began as a group of 10 has grown over the years to 20 and 30 dedicated golfing pals who hold true to the tradition of playing every Thursday for the past 47 years. In addition to golf, I've and my involvement in politics, I've been fortunate enough to meet five United States presidents, including John Kennedy, Ronald Reagan, Gerald Ford, President Lyndon Johnson, and even playing 18 holes of golf with President Trump here at Bighorn in 2002. I also played in the past with Billy Graham and people like Lawrence Welk. It's all been fun. I can only summarize by saying I've had an enjoyable career and uh, varied. As I said, I think golf has played such a great part Alan, in my life. I appreciate you sharing and the things that have brought you to this point, most specifically your partnership and your relationship with your wife over these years. I want to touch on that, and we will in a, in a moment if you don't mind. But I'd also like to ask you some other questions, and that is, during those early years, what drove you? Was it you seem to have broadcasting on your mind from a very early age. Where did that come from? What was that, what was that drive that you had when you first got involved in broadcasting? Well, I think in large measure, <clears throat> because we married so young, the support obviously comes from my wife. I mean, she was, you know, she maintained the household and she was supportive in all of my endeavors. Um, I had, you know, strong support from my parents. Being an only child, uh, they enforced integrity and uh, an honest and earnest work ethic. So in large measure, I think I was supported by, you know, family and, and friends. I, the people I've surrounded myself with or have been involved with as friends have, you know, been supportive. And that's been very helpful then, to me. I mean, you went into politics. God, we watch politics today. I mean, I don't know what your feeling is about that, but what was it like then? I mean, was politics more, especially on the local level? Obviously, there wasn't the, the money involved as there is today. It was really a, a matter of serving, wasn't it, at the time? At that time, 
when you could be effective in implementing such simple things as being involved in putting the crosswalk in front of Mrs. Jones' church or uh, negotiating and representing the city and putting a stoplight in, which, you know, those are all kind of like small things, but it all goes what makes up the community. And you feel like you were doing things that really were making a difference. You know, and when you say money in politics, I think... At the time, I think it was $200 a month, and I would spend easily 40 to 50 hours a week, you know, at the neglect of my businesses, just, you know, attending to things like the Kiwanis meeting or going to a Chamber of Commerce meeting or an opening of some facility and representing the city and you know at the county level or in the city level well, and, and at every part of your life as we move along in these questions that I'm about to ask you, your connection to people, your feeling for people, your desire to do something for others, uh, that always comes through. I think that that's a great part of your success as far as memberships and everything else. But at that time, the politician was really connected to the community. I mean, you knew everybody. You saw them at the coffee shop or you saw them every day. It has pros and cons, but I would think that it was pretty satisfying. It was very gratifying, and it was kind of the springboard uh, for other interests that I developed along the way. I mean, I didn't set out to build five restaurants. I didn't set out to build four car washes or, you know, buy, for that matter, three radio stations and, and all the things that I did. But being on the council exposed me to a lot of those things, and I began to have a more fundamental understanding of, you know, what makes the world go around. We talk about the twists and turns. Your life has had chapters, if you will. I mean, because you've had this. You started in the, the, the radio business, communicating with your neighbors. You went on to being on air at the most successful radio station in Los Angeles, which is the second biggest market in the, in the United States. Um, though, then the next chapter is this very successful businessman. I mean, it's, I mean, those accomplishments are, are really something. That was also, I would think, due to relationships to a great degree, too. They offer you opportunities, and then you take advantage of those opportunities. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and, and nothing uh, is done alone in a vacuum. You know, I mean, you need the support of people. And, uh, again, the alliances with, you know, good partners. I've had enjoyable relationships there. Um, I, I wish that all of my endeavors were all successful, but like anything in life, you know, you, you learn from sometimes from upsets or failures and, you know, life goes on. So I, I've had my share of both. I think there are two most important days of your life are the day that you were born and the day that you find out why. And, you know, my days of finding out why have been many, but I still seek you know, more days of finding out Again, why. Again, in these partnerships, they came out of just uh, opportunity. They came out of people coming to you. How did all of this develop in those businesses at the outset? Yeah, I think that, you know, for the most part, which kind of traced my successes in, in terms of golf sales, membership sales, is that, you know, I've been a very social person, person by nature. And, uh, that engenders interest from other people. I mean, you make contacts, and 
they find interest in you know what you have to offer, and uh, from those alliances have come opportunities in partnerships and you know like the the interest in the airline and and the uh, the building of industrial buildings. I mean, all of that was through golf relationships. Well, we talk about in these podcasts about hopefully they they provide some life lessons or some lessons about business or whatever it might be that can be shared uh, generational. And in your case, I always think it's important to, if you're good in sales, you will always have a job. You'll always have a career because at the very least, we're selling ourselves in many cases. And that sounds to me what you've been doing since you put the pin in the egg and sent those eggs to the to the people uh, uh, to get that that big job. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I talk about uh, if you had to pass things along to the younger folk. Uh, my admonition to those who, when we talk about whether I've talked at schools or to colleges or high schools or whatever, is that I express the view that you should never find yourself going to work. I think you need to thoroughly enjoy and have a sense of you know self-satisfying accomplishment and um, that's critical i think to enjoy success in what you're doing whether it's selling or running a business uh, i've told my grandchildren and, and my children one of the important qualities of being successful is to be a great listener i think most successful people that i've known are the ones who do more listening than talking Pay attention, you know, learn from others, be a great listener, ask questions. There's a simple uh, multi-pronged bit of sales advice that I'd offer to a young person. And most importantly would be, as I said, be a great listener. Tell the people what you're going to tell them. Then tell them. And finally, tell them what you've told them and ask for the order. All too often, you know, many salespeople I see go through the steps, but they, they fail to ask for the order at the end. But no one's born confident. I think the best way is to create confidence is to take an active part in whatever you're faced with. Get in the habit of honoring yourself, recount the good things that have happened each day, and trust yourself. When you now had this successful, very successful business career, as I mentioned, now you go to the farms. First of all, how did you get to the farms? I mean, was that it was just starting up and they wanted somebody like yourself to come in and sell memberships? And then the second aspect of this question is, um, as that developed, and as you said, that's when you first met Artie Hubbard. Mm -hmm. Tell me what your first impressions of him was when, when you first met him. But first, the farms. Well, uh, coming to the farms <clears throat> came out as a result of uh, I had uh, sold my businesses. We spent a year and a half, the only time in my, I'm going to be 82 in January, in my 82 years in California, a year and a half of that was spent in Phoenix with the former city manager of, of Escondido. He and I became fast friends. And he left city management uh, just after the time I got off the city council and went to Phoenix and became an extraordinarily successful developer of home sales, homes by Dave Brown. So he asked me when businesses were sold, he said, why don't you come over and 
we'll do some things in Arizona. And uh, at the time, that's when the economy kind of turned. We spent a year and a half there. I built a beautiful home. And it just didn't click. And I missed California tremendously. And so I told friends that I was going to be coming back to um, San Diego, to Escondido specifically, because that's where our family was raised. That's where we had most of our businesses. And uh, I can't even remember the connection, but someone said, oh, I know, it was Tommy Jacobs, who was the, uh, the head professional at La Costa. He was going to run the, the development of the farms. And uh, Tommy said, you know, why don't you come over and have a look? And I did. And I, we'd always belonged to a private club. We belonged to Palma Valley Country Club for 18 years. So I knew, you know, the, I served on the board there at Palma Valley and understood the workings of a, of a golf club. And I took the challenge of, you know, taking this new private golf course, golf club, heavily golf-saturated area of North San Diego County, was successful in putting together, as I said, 335 memberships. And so meeting Mr. Hubbard, he was no less <laughs> forthright and dynamic then than he was, you know, at, up to the end of his life. He, uh, he was impressive. He, he was a man that was assertive. He knew what he wanted. And uh, he and Jimmy came along, along with Dr. Uh, Alred. And uh, they liked the farms. And, that, of course, he had interest in horse racing. And Del Mar was a chip shot away from the farms golf club. So all of that came together. But we created, a, you know, a, I think a reasonable friendship. And then uh, when they purchased from Westinghouse the, the Bighorn uh, development, why... I was invited to come here, and that's how that all came about. And there were some big games during that time with uh, Dr. Al Red and and Mr. Hubbard and uh, Colbert and and uh, and other people that came into it. That was a pretty exciting time. They played a lot of golf, and there was a lot of a lot of back and forth, but it was fun to and see. And then when you came to Bighorn. It's always easy to look back, and he was such a visionary, and there was, you know, he knew exactly where he was going, and sometimes it, as the Canyons Golf Course, it takes a life of its own sometimes, and the, the original concept, and then what's really happened. But that had to be a, a really exciting time. It, it truly was. I mean, you know, to, to you hear stories about things exploding or business succeeding, but that... Uh, that catalyst that was created then was phenomenal because, let's face it, for seven years, Westinghouse, a major corporation, they floundered for seven years here. I mean, there were times when I don't think they would sell a property or two properties in a year. And they went through a series of managers and there was, I think, double dealing. There was a lot of nonsense going on. And Mr. Hubbard took control with the investors and immediately, you know, spent money and then took the bull step of spending $32 million in the development, not counting the cost of land, uh, of developing the canyons. And the combination of the canyons and the mountains, the location of the club, and then the continued interest in developing the club further with things like the spa and the, you know this up to seven locations where you can have breakfast, lunch, or dinner, uh, the vault. I mean, all the things combined made this a pretty special place. And again, th that vision is extremely important because you always have to be moving forward in this business. It's a very competitive business, and if you're not moving forward, someone else is catching up and passing you. And that certainly was the case with Bighorn all the way along. 
is that he was always a step ahead of the competition. Well, he, he was that. Um, he, he, you know, you talk about great influences. There are a few people in my life that have had, you know, a direct effect in my life. And as I mentioned earlier, principally my wife, Nancy, has always been supportive in whatever endeavor I undertook. My former business partner, he taught me discipline and persistence and loyalty. And then Dave Brown, this former city manager of Escondido, was a great influence in my life. And without question at all, one of the greatest influences in my life was R.D. Hubbard. And lastly, you know, my mother and my father, who emphasized you know, the integrity and the work ethic, which I possess and have passed on to my grandchildren, I like to think, in many well, ways. Well, it's important to set examples. And when you do, it's a lot easier for people to to follow those examples, and certainly a work ethic is extremely important to, to pass on. At the start of Bighorn, what do you remember about that time other than this visionary comes in and he takes control? And I'd also like to ask you, because you'd have been involved in other clubs, the business model here was unique because many, many clubs, most of them are committees, are board of directors, and that changes, and that changes philosophies, and it changes direction. This business model was important in the success. Could you speak to that? Having been a member of the Palma Valley Country Club and as a director there, uh, serving on a board, and then at the farms, it was like a Roman forum. I think we had 12, 13 board members. And then to come to Bighorn and have, which is reverently referred to as a benevolent dictator, Mr. Hubbard, uh, he, he uh, exerted such a wonderful influence on, on everything that he seemed to touch. And he never micromanaged. He uh, knew everything that was going on to be sure, whether it was sales or how members were being treated or prospective members were... Uh, being shown Bighorn, but he, um, he he was a remarkable individual and uh, set a great example, I think, for all of us to uh, to follow. And in large, well, large measure, in only measure, he's responsible for what Bighorn is today. Well, and he was actively involved. You said he knew everything. If you, I know from personal experience, if you had played a golf course someplace other than Bighorn, by the time you came back, R.D. Hubbard already knew where you went and and uh, and where you played. I mean, he he was so in touch. And in, he had an uncanny ability, uncanny ability, to remember things that were said and done. Years back, I mean, uh, I wouldn't say to the to the letter, but he could remember conversations that I had, you know, since forgotten, and you know, I'd say, Alan, you told me, and you know, and that, and that was always a reminder to me that, you know, he knew what was going on, kept his hands on it, and yet I never ever felt, uh, and I think others would say this, that you know, he was overbearing or over, you know, reached in his overseeing of the operation of of Bighorn, but he knew. Everything that was going on, he knew the pandemic. And he listened. He did. That was. He I was think a, that's something that's underestimated. Yeah. That he, that he made these decisions, but he made these decisions based on listening. He certainly did. He certainly did. Absolutely. Another big personality that you mentioned before, that I want to get some other stories about, is Gary McCord. Here's a a bigger than was a bigger than life personality on CBS. Still is that personality. 
and in his new endeavors. What was that relationship like? You were the best man in his wedding, but uh, you got to tell me some of those stories. Well, <clears throat> we had a lot of fun. <laughs> One of the great stories that I love to tell, and it, to this day we laugh about it. I was at the time, I think, 37, 38 years old, and uh, I was on the city council still, I think, at the time. And Gary was sponsored by Lawrence Welk. And Lawrence Welk, he sponsored him for two years. Lawrence committed Gary to having to live in the community of Escondido, adjacent to a mobile home park that Lawrence had purchased outside of Escondido. He wanted Gary to kind of be a representative and to go to Chamber of Commerce meetings and not city council meetings, but just to be involved in the community because of his trailer park interests. When I say trailer park, it was hundreds of acres and a beautiful and very successful development. But in the course of all that, uh, that's how our relationship began. Gary was playing at Tuckaway, uh, and there was a city... Uh, conference at the time in I can't remember somewhere in the in the Midwest and uh, I, I I went to the meeting and then I said you know Gary's in town I understand he's you know a professional golfer and I called him and he said well why don't you come out watch us play so I did and we cultivated that interest anyhow long story short at the time I wanted to play as much golf as I could play in one day as a challenge just to myself so I called Gary in Escondido the night before, and I said, Gary, I'm going to go out and play Palma Valley. I'm going to tee off at 5.15 in the morning. And I've told the golf shop about it, and it was the second longest day of the year, June 22nd. And I said, would you like to come out and play? Because I want to play as many holes as I can play. He said, well, you're crazy. You can't do that. So I said, okay. Well, I went to bed that night. I got a phone call. Just as I had gone to bed, Gary says, come pick me up picked me up at 4.30. So I did. I picked him up at 4.30 in the morning. We went out and we played 144 holes of golf. Played eight complete rounds of golf on a very good golf course. And uh, we always laugh about it because our last putt dropped at 8.30 at night. And I would never dreamt of playing 144 holes in a day. But we had a lot of fun. That's a great story. The other thing is you have this group that you've played with for, re remind me now, how many years has this group been together? 40, 43 years, years now, 43 yeah. 43 years. I'm going to ask you a tough question, I would think. Give me some of your favorite courses over those 43 years. Well, you know, you, you, you have to start with, you know, the Monterey Peninsula. I mean, there's not a golf course there that I ever, you know, turned my back on. They were all, everything was, I've played them, I think, every one of them. And having lived there for a period of time, uh, I didn't play that much golf then, but subsequently played all the courses there. They're all special um, in California, of course, I always you know think of Palma Valley, which is kind of a well-kept secret. It's a wonderful Robert Trent Jones golf course, uh, 21 miles north of Escondido and in a secluded little valley, and very, very good golf course. San Diego Country Club is a great golf course. Rancho Santa Fe in the Covenant has a great old golf course with a tremendous rich history to it. Hogan played there, and a lot of the initial, the Crosby, the initial Crosbys were played there for several years. So those are all, you know, wonderful golf courses. I know this is going to be a, a difficult question because of all the people that you know, all the relationships you, and experiences that you've had. What's your ideal foursome? Well, McCord would have to be in the group. 
I think dear friends, you know, uh, no less my family. I've got, uh, my son is here. He's a very good golfer, my grandson. But if I had to name people apart from my family, the outing with Trump was interesting only because, you know, what subsequently occurred. But he was no, no different on the golf course than his persona as exemplified in his four years as being president. I mean, he, he was a very good player. But he, he shared a lot about himself, talked a good deal about himself. But he was kind. In fact, unsolicited, wrote me to this day. I have the letter. Wrote me a very nice letter thanking for the day and enjoying how Bighorn was. So I would say, you know, that would be interesting. Uh, Billy Graham, was that was wonderful, did that more than once. He was a member out at Palma Valley. Those are all, you know, the kind of people that were just fun and interesting. And I met so many wonderful people here at Bighorn that captains of industry, uh, people who, you know, struggled from seemingly small beginnings and, you know, ascended to great heights in the business world or pharmaceutical. I mean, it's been fascinating. It's been a good life. It you has touched indeed. on this, and I know it's very emotional, but the longest, closest, uh, and I'm sure most rewarding partnership that you've had is with your wife. And yeah. um, your ability to have all these experiences is, uh, from personal experience, has to be supported. Otherwise, you can't do all these things. Otherwise, you can't take risks. You can't move forward. You can't change jobs. You can't do all these things. I know it's tough, but it just, I mean, you, you got together so early, and you've been such a part of each other's life. Um, what's the secret to the longevity of a relationship like that? You know, truly stated without, you know, getting trite is you need to give <clears throat> more than you get. And um, we've kind of lived by that credo. I mean, both my wife and I have seemingly always crossed that line of, you know, if there is a discussion or a debate about something, uh, the favor would go more towards the mate and vice versa. If I had a feeling and I'd listen to her views, she would tell me what was on her mind, and oftentimes we'd wind up doing, you know, what we both collectively decided to do together. And I think that was, um, I guess that would be the success, I think, just giving, always being willing to give more than you You've touched you on get. some of these because I think they're important, and there's a line that goes through all these podcasts because most of the people on these podcasts started from nothing. You get your first job because you have to make some money. I mean, plain and simple. And then things evolved. And like you say, to find a passion, then that makes it not a job. You can't wait to get there every day. But some of the questions are, is, you touched on these people, but the people that had the greatest influence on your life other than certainly your wife and, and your business partner, are there any other people that you can point out that were just well, you know, it's funny. I, I um, Because of my interest in broadcast, I didn't finish college. And it, my, my time, <laughs> this sounds ridiculous, but my time playing baseball from a very young age into, I played American Legion ball at a high level and then semi-professional baseball. 
I learned more in that dugout dealing with those people than I did in whatever time I had in college and certainly my four years in high school. I mean, you, you really learn, you know, how to win. You know, learn how to deal with loss. You know, learn, you know, the disposition of people and how to laugh and have fun and then how to deal with adversity. There's only a few times in my life that I've had my legs shake. One, when I was 16 years of age, I was pitching American Legion state finals against the prior year's state champions. It was San Diego. And trust me, at that age, in that situation where you're relying on others, this kind of pressure really, you know, builds character. And it did with me. And then in June of 63, four months before the assassination of John Kennedy, I met with him, and I found him to be extraordinarily inspirational. Um, I was young, I was 24, and I was motivated by his intellect and his passion. And then, of course, my knees shook when our first baby was born. I mean, those were all moments that I, you know, stand out in my mind as... Uh, being significant, and you know, when you think about your legs actually shaking, that's only happened to me a few times, but they For stand sure. out. Um, what qualities do you and did you look for in people that worked with you? I think an earnest you know, work ethic, a person that's reliable, uh, that they're devoted to each task. It's how they commingle with other employees. I think, you know, great people are a key ingredient. I always found in running the businesses, I want to surround myself with extraordinary individuals. And I've used this expression many times. I've found that good men make good oil wells, meaning, you know, you need to have the support of people around you. And I think another thing, too, in management philosophy, and I've used this, I use it to this day, and I learned it from the one-minute manager who authored books. He lived in Escondido. Um, is to catch something, to catch someone doing something good, and then telling them about it, and it, uh, it it's it's interesting how, what a simple gesture like that can be, and how important it is oftentimes to those people. Whether it's you know someone just doing a menial task, or someone at the store that just does something, and you catch it, and it's really genuinely, you catch them doing something good, and you tell them about it, and it's it's easy, it's cheap, it's free, and it's. And it's heartwarming. It's a great feeling. I agree. I think it gives the, it gives both people a great feeling, the person that you're talking to and to you. Um, what would be your management philosophy? Well, when I size a candidate, uh, you know, for, for to, to work, I, one of the key questions uh, I would always ask people that work for us is tell me all the good things that you've done, whether it's you know from school or education or other places you've worked. And people are very forthcoming. They'll tell you all the good things that they've done, you know, as, as anyone would. But then at the end of the interview, I'll ask, now, if I were to call your last employer, what would the employer say was the worst thing that they detected about you? I mean, was there a reason that you left their employment or... It's interesting to find out because people are not too quick to tell you the things that they've done that they'd like to redo, you know, or have done over again. In management philosophy, I look for a person who's enthusiastic about company goals, 
uh, you know, I, it's my job to set the direction and to motivate them. Uh, and like uh, Mr. Hubbard, I reflected on not to micromanage and to select those who are to be in charge with the responsibility of being accountable. I think it, you know, it begins with the establishment of a proper environment you know, to energize the others to be respect, uh, responsive and productive. And you know, I like to foster that and encourage that in people. And with everything that you've accomplished in your life, today, what gives you gratification? I know that you still mentor people. I know that you still are in touch with people, especially in the club business, and that people phone you and ask you for your opinion. What, what drives you in that regard today? Well, uh, with me, it's maintaining uh, friendships. And I don't, again, mean to be trite, but uh, by maintaining friendships, uh, it, it keeps me going. It's, 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 it's my there there. Uh, I, uh, I just find that rewarding and fulfilling, and it's not just a, you know, a platitude. It's something that, that I, I work hard at, and I continue to do it, and it gives me and pleasure. And the last question I'm going to ask you is the one that I ask everyone, and that is, what advice would you give the 20-year-old Alan Scuba today? Well, I said earlier, and I, I sincerely endorse the, the thought of don't ever find yourself going to work. You know, do something you thoroughly enjoy and you find it you know, satisfying. Um, being a good listener, uh, I think being confident, and the best way to do that is to take an active part in whatever you're faced with. Um, and, you know, I, I, the key, my bottom line key was find something you really enjoy doing. And you might have to weed through several careers or do other different things, but find something you like and then give it your all. It would be that simple. Alan, thank you so much for coming in today and, and doing this interview. Uh, I don't believe um, that we've even touched on so many other stories and so many other recollections that you have. But to give us an overview of what has been an absolutely interesting um, and productive life. And I tell everybody that when you have spend a couple of minutes with Alan, you are better for the experience. And if you see him, say hi, because uh, he's got still a lot of knowledge to impart on all of us. So again, I appreciate it. Thank you. And thank, thank you, you, Alan, for sharing all the twists and turns that shaped your life and for all your contributions you have made to the Bighorn community. And thanks again to Leeds and Son Fine Jewelers for being an integral part of our community for over 70 years. And AT&T, who along with being a worldwide communications company, make it their mission to support local communities in efforts like ours to bring positive messages to all of you. And Back Nine Greens, who create golf art in their installation and personal service to their product, and they have a direct connection to our community. We look forward to bringing you the next episode of the Bighorn Podcast very soon. And thank you for being a listener and a supporter of our broadcasts.